was in 2001 that the founders of Scrum and the founders of Extreme Programming got together at the Agile Manifesto meeting, along with 10 or 11 other consultants, authors of books, experts in software, thought leaders, and had a discussion around what are we going to call what we're doing in common? Because the old way of working, the traditional way of doing project management, just does not work. And we need a new way of working, and we need an umbrella word to use to describe what we're doing. That's the voice of Dr. Jeff Sutherland, talking about the gathering that resulted in the Agile Manifesto. Dr. Sutherland is one of the signatories of the Agile Manifesto, co-author of Scrum, The Art of Doing Twice the Work in Half the Time, and the founder and CEO of Scrum, Inc. This is 360 Real Time, a Steelcase podcast with behind-the-scenes conversations on the research impacting the places where people work, learn, and heal. I'm your host, Katie Pace. Today, we have the opportunity to learn about Agile and Scrum from a man who knows as much about it as anyone. Here's some quick background. The Agile Manifesto is a set of 12 principles meant to guide software development teams and is now used by diverse disciplines to speed up product development and improve success rates. The Manifesto was an outcome of more than a decade of work on the actual processes like Scrum. Today, Scrum is the most widely deployed concrete application of Agile. We caught up with Dr. Sutherland on the phone to give us more insight into how Scrum can really improve productivity up to 300 to 400 times. And stick around to hear what he says about banning email. Dr. Sutherland, thanks for joining us. It's nice to be here. Thanks, Katie. If we look around today, there's a ton of discussion and news around Agile and the Scrum process and even the Agile manifesto today. Why do you think this is getting so much attention today? What's happened and what we knew is that in order to deliver product faster and iterate quicker, you needed small teams working in short cycles. Amazon has a thousand Scrum teams and they deploy a new feature every 11.6 seconds. And what's happening is companies like Amazon is not the only one. You know, recently I was talking with Maris Shipping. They're really concerned about Amazon because Amazon's buying airplanes to do shipping. And now they're contracting with all the ships between China and the United States. And their technology platform makes it impossible to compete unless you go as fast as they do. So people are going to either change or go out of business. It's like Nokia, right? Nokia had 60% market share in 2007, 2011, zero. Why? Because the iPhone iterated faster than they could keep up. Are you seeing more teams outside of software development start to think about Agile? What's happening, for example, Saab Technologies, which builds fighter aircraft. I was a fighter pilot for many years, so one of my favorite customers is Saab Technologies. And they build the fighter aircraft with Scrum. And uh, the pilots are co-located with the teams. They can turn around a test in the air in 45 minutes. They do two or three-week sprints. And every six months, a new release of the airplane appears. And every release is faster, lighter, and cheaper, just like your laptop. Okay, so, and what they say is what's happened in hardware is that Everything is software now. Nothing is created for that airplane that is not simulated on a computer and proven to work, and only then do they make it concrete in the hardware. So the distinction between hardware and software is evaporating. It's all becoming one thing. 
That's really true. And at Steelcase, we're in the midst of an internal experiment. We're working on how to best host these agile ways of working and the Scrum process. We're thinking a lot about the role the physical environment plays in the Scrum process. I'm wondering if you can talk from your experience. Have you seen how an environment can enhance or hinder Scrum? Definitely. The best way of working, the fastest teams, are co-located and they can see and talk while they're working. In Europe, it's a pretty natural way of working. In the United States, we've had these cube farms, you know, where people were kind of isolated from one another. So the walls of the cubes need to come down, and you need to create team spaces. And you still need to have places where people can go when they need privacy. But you need collaborative spaces, and I know a lot of Steelcase's work is in that area, and I've seen a lot of pictures of stuff that you guys are doing. Uh, Back in 2000, when I became CTO of a company called Patient Keeper, we leased two floors on a brand new building, and we built out the space specifically for Scrum. And so you need team areas where people collaborate as teams, but those team areas need to be protected so that other teams aren't confusing each other. (laughs) Like just totally open space doesn't work. (laughs) You need team spaces that are collaborative, that are somewhat shielded. And then even within the team, the people need private spaces that they can go to when they need privacy. And uh, getting all that all to work is really, I think, the building of the future. And I know Steelcase is working on that stuff intensely. Exactly. We are. And that's interesting because we talk about how the environment can help shape behavior and then behavior over time becomes culture. So talk a bit about the importance of culture to the Scrum process. The challenge coming into a traditional organization is you have a a hierarchical command and control culture that will prevent teams from really performing. And so you have to evolve that into a team-based culture where the leadership is supporting the teams. You know, my view has always been you can't directly change culture. Uh, What you do is you change the structure of the way people work. And because Scrum does things incrementally, one small step at a time, as you implement the Scrum and you train people, you gradually evolve the way of working, and then that changes the nature of the culture. So, you know, people say it's impossible to change culture directly. You have to come at it sideways, and Scrum is a very good tool for that. You talk in your book about the importance of giving the team control over getting the work done. And I'm wondering if you also see an advantage to giving people control over their workspace or giving teams control over what the design of their workspace looks like. Yes, I mean, one of the things that happened when we started up Scrum Inc., We implemented a pattern called the happiness metric. Um, We were doing weekly cycles, weekly sprints, and at the end of the week, we have a review of what we've done and then a retrospective on how well is what we're doing working. And in that retrospective, we decided to ask people, how happy are you with your job? How do you feel about your job? And what would make you happier? We did that because we had learned from going around the world that happiness actually drives production. It's a better forward indicator of revenue than most financial metrics. So we wanted to try that out. Well, the very first retrospective we asked that question, the team said, we don't like our space. Oh, wow. So I said, okay, then what we're going to do is out of the retrospective, we always want to take the top process improvement and put that in the backlog of work for the next sprint. 
as a top priority. So I said, okay, so the top priority for the next sprint for this team is get new space. <laughs> so they went and they did some research, and we are now in uh, the Cambridge Innovation Center right across the street from the MIT Business School, which has very innovative space. The building we're in has 700 startups in one building. And so they're all, you know, creative, dynamic, experimenting with space. Facebook has a whole floor there. So, you know, Facebook has its take on space. Even companies like Apple and Amazon have little labs in the building in the midst of all these startups. Uh, so the whole building is a new space idea happening on a daily basis. Yeah, and I mean, we talk about having the right palette of places or the right variety of spaces to choose from throughout the day. We know that what works best after years of, of doing this in many different companies, and that is you get a team space where people can collaborate and they're not disrupted by other teams or other people. And then either within that team space, there's ways for people to be private, either within the space or just outside the space, there's places we could go. How important is it to be co-located, and how do you deal with teams that might be distributed, or do you simply not recommend working with distributed teams at all? First, the research clearly shows, uh, there's a great paper with one company randomly co-located teams in a building so they could see and talk when they were working. They took half of the teams and did that, and the other half of the teams they just let be wherever they were. And immediately, in the first month, the teams who were co-located got twice as much done. That's the first thing you need to understand. Co-location doubles production. On the other hand, I'm on a team where one of my team members is right now in San Francisco, another in Washington, another in Cambridge. I'm in New York. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> so when we have a daily meeting, I just got out of some daily meetings. We, uh, in fact, we just had our sprint review with all teams, and we had people from all over the United States online. We had people in Baku, in Abidjan, and other parts of Europe, all in one big sprint review meeting, and we use video. So the challenge then, when you have distributed, is to make it feel co-located. So in order to get it there, there needs to be some regular face-to-face interaction. So every quarter, we take the whole company and bring them to Cambridge and spend two days face-to-face building those relationships. And then when we separate, everything is by video. We want to see the whites of their eyes. We want to see how they're feeling, whether they're tired. <laughs> whether We don't want to see them looking at their cell phone, uh, all these kind of things. And we use tooling, you know, Scrum tooling to manage all the backlog. So that's visible from anywhere. And we track, the, there are mechanisms in Scrum to track and make visible everything everybody's doing which is extremely important. And if you can get all that really working well, uh, for example, another important thing is get rid of email. Okay, so oh, wow. email is banned except for external customers. <laughs> we use FlowDoc, uh, which is similar to Slack. So everybody can see the conversations going on in every team at all times. Let's talk more about that because I recently read the book Deep Work by Cal Newport, and he says something similar. I think the idea of banning email strikes people as radical. The problem with email is you get all these random things that become kind of a list of things to do in the wrong order, and it generates a lot of unnecessary work and work that's out of order, and it generates a lot of multitasking, switching back and forth, which slows things way down. So 
how you set up the environment, how you work the environment is really critical. So very true. How do you see Agile changing in the future? Or do you see it changing? The future is already here. And what's happened is Scrum is built on cross-functional teams. And in the early days, we said, okay, we need to bring the testers into the team so that testing gets done inside the sprint. That significantly reduces delays and improves quality. And then we said we need to start automating the testing. And then now it's all about we need to bring the deployment people and the operations people into the team. And so the team is fully competent to deploy to the market multiple times a sprint. And now when you talk about AI, I I just read an article this morning about Google. They said, okay, the AI at Google is better at writing AI code than programmers (laughs) (laughs) So I had a fascinating conversation with a senior researcher at IBM's uh, research lab in Zurich. And a couple of years ago, he said, I'm working on building a supercomputer that runs Scrum. And I said, well, why are you doing that? He said, because if it works with people, it will work on a computer. And the computer needs to dynamically respond to what's going on. And he said, we need a a different kind of chip that can actually dynamically change in real time. But he says, we have that technology. So we're writing a new book on Scrum right now. And the theme of the book is what happens in the workplace when things get faster and faster and things become more and more automated and jobs are taken away. You know, how can Scrum help? (laughs) Well, exactly. And can you give us a preview? How can it help? In an environment where things are dynamically changing and becoming more and more automated, people need to become able to do multiple things and work together as a team. It's why uh, one of the things we often say is, you know, no one person is smarter than all of us. So people need to be able to do more things and they need to work together as teams so they can do them smarter and better. And Teams that can do that will survive in a world that's becoming increasingly automated in a better way than the specialists, most of whom are going to be put out of business as the automation takes over. On the one hand, Scrum is designed, it's a, it's a lightweight framework where you bring it into an organization or an industry and it's designed to be adapted into the environment. However, in the Scrum Guide, which is the definition of Scrum, it, it is a minimal set of things that need to work. And... Uh, Scrum was a massive research project, and everything we did with the first Scrum team was benchmarked on Capers-Jones software, where we had tooling with data from over 50,000 projects around the world. And we implemented Scrum, and we benchmarked it against that tooling, and only when it went 10 times as fast did we say that it was ready for consumption. So in the Scrum Guide, there's a set of three roles, three artifacts, and five events that have to work to get 10x. So when people are adapting, they should adapt to make it go faster. What's the most critical takeaway for companies interested in Scrum? I think what's really important for people is to understand that just as Professor Nanaka and Takeuchi said in their original paper, A well-organized lean team, and Scrum is based on that, that's where the origins come from, has a set of interlocking parts that all have to work together. So any one of them by itself will not do the job. It's, you know, the five or six of them all interlocking together. It's like putting together a Swiss watch. 
you have all these gears, and any one gear will not tell the time, and they all have to work together, and then all of a sudden, stuff happens. So I, I would say that the biggest problem in the land of Agile is that they haven't got the pieces together in a way that they get dramatic results. Because I, I, even at Amazon with a 1,000 teams, I asked the management, okay, what percent of your teams are awesome? They said 5%. I said, okay, well, we got a lot of work to do with the other 95% of the teams. Yeah, exactly. It can always improve. And that brings up that the whole thing, a lot of companies think that, <laughs> you know, okay, we implement Agile and then we're done. No, <laughs> it is a never-ending process of improvement, okay? Many of the companies that we work with actually have been doing Scrum for many years. So, for example, Autodesk said, you know, we've been doing Scrum for six years, but every time a company comes up with a product that's competitive, we buy them. And all these companies we're buying are doing Scrum and doing it better than we are. And we're really worried that there'll be a Google of AutoCAD that we can't buy and they will disrupt our market. So we need to yeah. upgrade the whole Scrum implementation. We need to come back in and retrain everyone, <laughs> including the management. All the product owners, the Scrum Masters, the teams, the management, and just raise the bar. And we've seen some companies, one of the large banks we work with, they're probably on their 10th iteration of that. Okay. Oh, wow. It's never ending. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Sutherland. Thanks for inviting me. It's been a great conversation, and I look forward to hearing the podcast. That was Dr. Jeff Sutherland, founder and CEO of Scrum, Inc. To explore learnings from the Steelcase research team around spatial attributes to support Agile work, read the latest 360 article on Agile, Six Ways to Support Agile Teams. You can find it and more 360 real-time podcasts at 360.steelcase.com. 360.steelcase.com.